Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and this is another high-yield highlight episode looking at some of the amazing research that is presented at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology each year. We did an episode like this last year where we brought on a panel to review the 10 to 15 most interesting abstracts that we thought from the year's research. And we're going to do it again this year with another amazing expert panel. You will be hearing from people who you've heard on this show in the past, Dr. Emily Kiernan, Dr. Joshua Trebach, Dr. Frank Polachek, and Dr. Grant Comstock, who are all coming on to share what they believe were some of their favorite abstracts, their notable limitations, and their implications for the future. We did also just release another NACT abstract review focusing just on acetaminophen research, Uh, This is going to be a little bit different in that we're not interviewing the authors. We are actually doing a panel discussion. Now, be sure to check the show notes for a link to the published 2023 North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology Abstracts. We will read out which number we're talking about in the title of each abstract, and you can find it in that PDF document if you want to read more or read it before we start talking about it. I will also put in the show notes the timestamp of where we start talking about each abstract. So if there's one you want to skip to to hear more about, feel free. As for the actual abstracts that we discuss on the show, we kick it off with number 225, Methotrexate Toxicity in the Setting of Therapeutic Error, a multi-center retrospective review, and have a great discussion about the serious problem of accidentally taking your weekly methotrexate daily as well as how we triage it and the limitations in our understanding of who develops toxicity. Then we jump to abstract number 251, oleander seeds and camel nut weight loss products strike again, and have a discussion of how poison centers and public health can work together to prevent these toxic products from reaching people. We then jump to a riveting discussion of abstract number two, efficacy of sodium tetrothionate when administered intramuscularly for the treatment of acute oral cyanide toxicity in a swine model, and get into a discussion of the limitations of our current antidotes for mass cyanide poisoning and the future of what cyanide antidotes might look like. We then jump to abstract number 10. Is our enough after out-of-hospital naloxone for opioid overdose? Perspective preliminary data from real-world implementation of the modified St. Paul's early discharge rule. This is a great discussion about when patients are actually okay to leave the emergency department after an opioid overdose if they've received naloxone. And we'll hear tons about the limitations of all of the current decision rules that exist. After a brief intermission, we discuss some very punny topics related to NACT titles and have a bit of a rambling discussion about the use of rivastigmine for anticholinergic delirium and jump right back into abstracts. We then move into abstract number five, which is randomized human trial of ANEB001, a CB1 receptor antagonist, in three doses of cannabis, and talk about the implications of what having a reversal agent for THC intoxication would be on many of these pediatric THC ingestions. We then move on to talk about abstract number 216, successful use of expired physostigmine to treat anticholinergic delirium in a pediatric patient, and have a discussion on the many factors that go into using expired medications and what the real risks are if there's benefit for patients. We follow this up with abstract number 202, 
enough negativity. Clinically significant solicitism with first detectable concentration 12 hours post-ingestion. And have a sobering discussion about how difficult it is to truly rule out salicylate toxicity when there's a strong history of ingestion. Finally, we end our discussion with abstract 267. High sensitivity troponin is frequently elevated after carbon monoxide exposure. And discuss the problems that arise with this troponemia that develops in response to carbon monoxide toxicity and what to do with it. We have some fantastic discussion. We weren't able to credit all the authors who created this amazing research for us to discuss. So I encourage you to check out these abstracts and see who's doing this work that's going to help us change the way we care for patients. I took away so much from the discussions with these really bright minds in toxicology. So whether you work in talks or you're not even in healthcare and you just want to hear about what some of the cutting edge research is in poisoning and drug overdose, get ready as we review what we believe to be some of the most interesting research out of the 363 total abstracts that were published at NACCT this year. Okay, let's dive in. Hey, everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. And oh boy, do we have a lot of people who manage poisoning today. This is a very special episode, one I am really excited to share with you all. We have some brilliant toxicology minds who are going to be dissecting some of the top abstracts from the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology that was held in Montreal, Canada in 2023. You just heard an episode where we covered all of the acetaminophen abstracts. And no, none of those are going to be on this episode. We are going to be diving into some other abstracts that are interesting to talk. So I have an all-star panel with me today. Each and every one of the people you're about to hear from has been on the show in, in the past. Uh, we have Dr. Emily Kiernan, Dr. Frank Polachek, Dr. Josh Trebach, and Dr. Grant Comstock. So if you all wouldn't mind, if maybe a listener hasn't heard you on one of the episodes in the past, would you mind introducing yourself, who you are, where you work, anything else you'd like to share? I'm Emily Kiernan. I'm an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist at Emory and the Georgia Poison Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And my favorite podcast is this one. <laughs> Did I make it to your Spotify wrapped this year? You got? I don't have Spotify. <laughs> oh, all right. Perfect. Thank you for joining today. I'm Frank Polchek. I'm currently retired, although they call me fake retired because I'm at work too much for no reason anyone understands. Um, I was at the University of Illinois for all of my professional career. I was an emergency medicine pharmacist, one of the earliest ones there, and one of the earliest um, in the first 35 people that ever got ABAT certified. I, I ran an EM residency program in pharmacy. I'm um, probably most well-known because of uh, X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, where I'm known as It's All Talks, and I usually say things that offend people. In a usually well-meaning manner, but though I can't say for all of it. I can trust that you'll edit my malaprops and, and offensive language. I'm going to do my best, but if you'd like to cognitively pre-edit, I will also. <laughs> Another thing that Frank has honed over many years is I think really an expert level of curmudgeon regarding literature. So <laughs> I, I think you're going to be a perfect person to have on the panel today. So thank you for joining. Dr. Trebach, would you mind going next? 
Oh, I would love to. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm Josh Trebach. I'm one of the medical toxicologists and emergency docs over in Iowa. Uh, I am I'm happy to be back on the on the show. I apologize in advance if my cats jump uh, up to the mic and give a friendly meow. Their meows do not endorse or uh, uh, say anything particular about any of the articles we're going to discuss. Just want to get that out there in advance. I've already reviewed all the articles with them. They have their own thoughts, but they're not joining us today. No, no cat favoritism. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I'm going to see a hairball is my question. But, yeah. uh, for me or the cats? Cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have, last but not least, a good friend and colleague from right here in Wisconsin, Dr. Grant Comstock. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. My name is Grant. I'm an EM doc and medical toxicologist at Medical College of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Poison Center. Uh, I, it's a pleasure to be back. I just let Ryan know that I'm I'm here in Door County right now at a very charming bed and breakfast on my baby moon. And I love that I'm spending it with you for so <laughs> I think you were out of town last time we did this too. You were like in a I was. At your... That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. Well, I owe your wife, I guess, a mocktail. Yeah. I, I know everyone but Frank, so it's a pleasure to meet you, Frank. <laughs> can we revisit that at the end and then we sure. can... we'll table it for now. <laughs> <laughs> so for the listeners, we're going to run through, hopefully, up to 10 North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology abstracts. There's about 360 published this year. Uh, so this is going to be the top roughly 5%. I was trying to think of what to call these. This is like, it's like sort of an award, but you know, there was no objective assessment of the methodology or anything like that. So it's sort of like things that we found valuable. What would we call them like the toxos or something like that? Or the toxies? I would call them the yuckies. I like the yuckies. Are you going to like make a little trophy to hand out next year? Like if we've picked your abstract, you get a toxie? Oh, yeah. We'd have to do this beforehand. Or we could just do this live at NACCT next year. Maybe mm-hmm. that would be. I think that's a great idea. The better. Way. Yeah. So a small trophy, the toxie award for the, toxie. Uh, the group voted best Uh-oh. abstract. So we're going to jump right in. I think I will go ahead and kick us off. And I kind of chose two. I chose one that I think is going to impact practice in the future and one that is going to impact practice and already has kind of impacted my practice right now. And the first abstract that I wanted to talk about is pause for dramatic effect and for me to find it. Abstract number 225, methotrexate toxicity in the setting of therapeutic error a multi-center retrospective review. Actually, before we jump in, I want to mention that we were going to have another guest on today. He was not able to make it, Dr. Dan McCabe. He made it uh, last year. And this was the study I know that he wanted to talk about as well. And I really wanted to talk about it. So uh, we are bummed that Dr. McCabe was not able to join us. But this is my um, shout out to uh, Dan and and appreciating his mind for uh, both of us wanted to talk about this exact abstract. But I feel like here, I have to ask, did you harm Dr. McCabe in order to take over this abstract? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, sure. che- I wouldn't check his methotrexate bottles. I'm not sure if there's, there's a lot in there, but uh, no, no, unfortunately, timing just didn't work out. Um, but this is one that I chose because we get called all the time about Oh, I accidentally took two of my amlodipine or, oh, I accidentally took five omeprazole. I don't know how that happened. And a lot of times it's not that big of a deal. When it comes to seeing serious problems from overdose, I get way more worried about intentional overdoses, suicidality, that kind of a thing. 
there's only a handful of drugs where therapeutic errors am I really concerned about, you know, very serious effects, even death. And methotrexate is one of those. And methotrexate is kind of prone to therapeutic errors because it's one of the few drugs that many people prescribe once a week. So they'll say, take 20 milligrams once a week, and then suddenly somebody takes it 20 milligrams daily. And there are cases of people dying from taking that 20 milligrams daily for just a couple of days. So if somebody calls me and said, oh, I you know took my methotrexate dose every day, now I have a reason to be concerned. And then there's another problem. Let's say I get a call from somebody who double dosed on their, you know, dofetilide, and I'm like, uh oh, I'm nervous. I'm going to send you into the hospital. And then we can do some labs and evaluations there and know whether or not you're going to get sick. The toxicity of that drug occurs pretty much right away or within a few hours. For methotrexate, because of its mechanism, which interferes kind of with cellular replication, it can take days to develop symptoms. So even if you call me and say, oh, I I took my methotrexate every day for a few days, even if I send you in, I don't know that I'm going to be seeing the symptoms that would occur at that exact moment. They might develop later. So it becomes an absolute conundrum for triage. So we were trying to solve this problem at our poison center. And I did a data poll looking back at other cases that we've had that had follow-up information so we could identify if these patients develop symptoms later. And I only had 10 patients. And I even pooled it with fatality reports to help increase my population to make some conclusions from. And we found some pretty crazy things. I mean, in the fatality reports, as little as 35 milligrams led to death, somebody taking 2.5 milligrams for 14 days. And then looking at our own internal data, we were seeing people develop toxicity on as little as 5 milligrams a day for 5 days, or in patients with some renal problems, 8 milligrams daily for 3 days. That's not very much. And there was other people who didn't get toxicity with those doses. And then when we looked at when they developed toxicity, we were seeing, you know, end organ damage and neutropenia develop 8 to 10 days out. So am I supposed to send everybody who potentially took any therapeutic error into the hospital to be monitored for 10 days for the development of life-threatening toxicity? You can see why this is a problem. So we really need to develop some level of triaging into who gets sick or at least how can we follow people who might get sick. That's why this study is so incredibly important. So this was a multi-poison center retrospective cohort study. And essentially, they looked at anyone who had uh, multiple uh, doses of methotrexate taken as a therapeutic error. So this actually excluded patients who had like a single acute overdose. So if you like took a whole bottle of methotrexate, you're out. That's kind of a different type of overdose. And we manage those differently. They ended up including 72 cases of methotrexate therapeutic error. These were older people, about 61 years old. In 68 of these cases, methotrexate was prescribed weekly. 86% of those cases, of those 68, took methotrexate daily instead of weekly. So let's look at what happened. End organ dysfunction was observed in about 43% of cases, so 31 of the uh, 68. The mean duration and dose of methotrexate being taken daily was six days and a total of 73 milligrams. But this was the main takeaway. There was two deaths out of this from somebody taking their therapeutic drug incorrectly for just a few days. 
And what I really found important was that no patient developed organ system dysfunction if methotrexate was taken for less than three days or a total dose of less than 32.5 milligrams. So taking methotrexate daily when prescribed weekly can result in toxicity and death. But for the first time, we are trying to pool all of our data to create more of a triage decision rule and identify if there are any exposure scenarios that are lower risk, which in this data set was less than three days of continuous dose and less than 32.5 milligrams. So what do you guys think? Um, I was actually really excited to see that you had you had chose this one as well, because this is always such a challenge for exact reasons you said. These patients show up and they might have no symptoms or very little symptoms. And then the question is, well, this is such a dangerous medication in overdose or in, in toxicity. Uh, what? How do we manage this? And so to my knowledge, I don't think we have a lot of other good triage tools for PO methotrexates after a few days. I think the abstract is an interesting first step. And it makes me interested to see what the actual paper looks like, um, because I look at those cutoffs and I say, well, all right, am I as, you know, working for a poison center or on call with a poison center, am I going to keep home the 70 year old with maybe, you know, grade two CKD with, you know, who took 30 for two days, but didn't hit that three day and didn't hit that 30 milligram mark. I'm, I'm probably going to still send them in for charcoal for labs in a week or, or whatever, you know, I'm still going to do some things. Um, and so if it's, if it's one patient who, you know, met that threshold of, of less than three days and less than 32.5 milligrams, well, then I'm not very compelled, but if there's a whole ton of patients who are under that, that threshold and still didn't get sick, well, then maybe that's a little more compelling. And maybe when we know, know a little bit more about the demographics of that cohort of patients, maybe then we can start to, to figure out the granularity of, of who actually you can keep at home. But as it sits in the format, you know, there in that jumble of abstracts there for the NACCT readout. I don't look at that and say, yep, I know where I'm going to go. It certainly maybe tells you there's a, a dose response threshold, but I think we, we probably all could intuit that to some degree. I don't know that those numbers mean a ton to me yet, but I'm, I'm certainly interested to see some more and, and to see this replicated elsewhere. You bring up such a good point here on, you know, just being careful in the interpretation, right? This is the largest study that we have, which is fantastic, but it's not all inclusive. There are data points that are not here. You know, when I was trying to solve this problem, for our center, you know, a few years ago, I found a data point that would sort of be in contrast to this, where I, there was a patient that had eight milligrams every day for three days, and they ended up developing organ toxicity. So as the population grows, as your sample population grows, you can be more confident in your conclusions and your sensitivity analysis of how likely your conclusion is to be correct. But obviously, there probably are going to be outliers here, especially uh, we definitely see more toxicity in patients who have renal insufficiency. And I don't know how many of those were included in this study. And that is a huge impactor, in my opinion, one of the pieces that's a, a big decision maker and how likely someone is to develop toxicity. There are case reports of people who are on hemodialysis taking therapeutic methotrexate, like taking it as prescribed and just dying because... <laughs> It built, you know, there's all sorts of issues with its clearance, and you know, it's it it can just build up. So there's a, a particular vulnerability to impaired renal function with those who are on methotrexate, even therapeutically, to the point where you can just end up, you know, showing up with uh, pancytopenia and all sorts of you know severe toxicity and die regardless of the supportive cares that we can administer. So obviously, yeah, it's a starting point. It's kind of like narrowing in an area for us to start drawing a line, but 
agrees it, there's going to be other variables that'll make that impact i'm on a i'm on a jump in here you're i'm going to keep feeding off this thread and i'm going to warn everybody i should have before i overthink everything to, the renal function is important as would be the concept of drug interactions that impact the tubular secretion and did why aren't we looking at that the methotrexate trimethoprim sulfa those are the two methotrexate dates deaths that I have witnessed in my career was dialysis patients taking once weekly as prescribed who got UTI um, doses of Bactrim or of a trimethoprim sulfa product and ended up having pancytopenia and death. That bothers me. I also, 62 of the 72 cases here were they took it every day. And then there were 10 cases they don't talk about much. So was that they took extra more than one daily dose on a day or a, or a couple of doses a day, BID, I, four times a day because Q, all of that is questions I would have asked when I did walk by this poster because I really wanted to talk to the people about this poster. And there was nobody there, unfortunately, so I couldn't get answers. But pre, yeah, I, I agree. We should probably dive more into the granularity, more to be figured out in terms of when do symptoms develop? How should they be followed up? Who should be sitting in a hospital to watch for those things? But this was a good start, I think. And, and uh, I, I appreciate that people are looking at this. So anyone wants to figure out the rest of those problems for us, that'd be wonderful. Okay. Can I just ask the crowd, how many of you would give this patient a patient like this activated charcoal? Because I'm afraid to say this out loud while it's being recorded. I probably wouldn't. Right, because they've already taken most of it. Yeah. If you're pulling the crowd, I would do the same. It's If, if you just took a big slug of it, then sure, let's give you some charcoal. But but in this in this uh, population, though, I'm with you. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's got saturable absorption. So actually, large ingestions, you don't even absorb that much. I get less worried about large ingestions than I do about a chronic, you know, I take 10 a day for 10 days. Well, let's just make sure they don't have, that they have intact GI mucosa then. Does anyone want to make the argument that uh, methotrexate has some gentle enterohepatic circulation? You could be a benefit. No, I don't. I, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I hate that term. I like the concept, Josh, forgive me, but I think we have grotesquely narrowed our focus here to enterohepatic when we should be talking about entero-entero. I mean, uh, th there are things that have greater recirculation because of biliary secretion, but all drugs can go back and forth across that membrane. Drugs that have no biliary secretion at all, I think there were studies with multiple doses of activated charcoal done with with pig intestines and in human beings that have shown that theophylline, which has nothing, I'm sorry, I'm an old, old man and I say theophylline. Theophylline that has no biliary secretion is well removed by multiple doses. And I think that is a not one-way semi-permeable membrane. It's a two-way. And as long as you can create enough of a concentration sink somehow, it'll, it'll, I, I think that your point's well taken. I'm not going to argue. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I, what I, I love activated charcoal and I don't want to get too much on the sidebar here, but I really do. I think even amongst the the residents and the fellows that I teach, they know that they're like, you know, I ask them what, what do you want to do next? And they're like, charcoal? I'm like, are you just saying that because I'm here? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I agree with you. I think, um, I think that was that, um, Berlinger paper where these patients got IV aminophilin got activated charcoal and it pulls from the plasma. It's just so cool. So I think there is, there, you know, obviously we, we can't, this is really hard to study, right? The utility of activated charcoal in all these patients because the IRB, for some strange reason, won't ever approve me taking a hundred healthy tox fellows and poisoning <laughs> them 
And for people who are listening, this is with heavy sarcasm. I don't believe in poisoning people intentionally. Uh, <laughs> I had identical twins, and I'm more than willing to still offer them up for scientific research at the age of 29. But uh, uh, I might start to like you. You said you said theophylline and charcoal in the same sentence. All right, all right. I'm gonna rein us in here. I'm gonna <laughs> us in. I don't know if we had a pool going for like time for to, to Frank bringing up theophylline, but if you had under 30 minutes, you you did take the money. I went a little over on this one, but who would like to jump in next? Abstract number 251, oleander seeds in candlenut weight loss product strike again. The reason I, I chose this one is because I have this, I think we all do in toxicology, have this love-hate relationship with the internet where we can do things like we're doing right now and there's there's pictures of cats and there's there's memes and there's funny stuff. It's good dissemination of information. But on the other hand, People can buy these unregulated supplements and products and get into all sorts of things that we in the tox and the poisons world aren't a huge, super duper fan of. And so this case sort of dives into an example of that. So this abstract's entitled Oleander Seeds and Candlenut Weight Loss Products Strike Again. Looks like it's come from our colleagues over at the Maryland Poison Center and Maryland Department of Health. It describes this uh, 55-year-old who took this weight loss product that they obtained off the internet. It's called, quote, Indian Nuts for Weight Loss. And it is supposed to contain a product called Candle Nuts, which are, I guess, typically sold as a, a weight loss agent due to their uh, some of the effects that they can cause. Um, I personally have not taken Candle Nuts, and so I cannot comment on their efficacy, taste, or other factors associated with Candle Nuts. But sounds like this patient took these Candle Nuts and ended up coming to the ED about 12 hours later. They had some GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and unfortunately were noted to be hyperkalemic. So the potassium was 5.9 and they were bradycardic down to the 40s. And for all of us who are in the tox world, that immediately sets off the bells, whistles, red flags for you know cardiac steroid poisoning, essentially. So it seems like that's what was triggered in the, the brains of the individuals taking care of this patient as well, because patient ended up getting uh, a digoxin concentration checked, and it was above the upper limit of quantification, which is greater than five nanograms per ml. So the patient got all the digoxin immune fragments that the hospital had available, and heart rate improved to 60, yada, yada, yada. Patient ended up being discharged and was following up and was doing fine. But it was really cool as opposed to, you know, sometimes we, we stop studies there and we're like, hey, this is what happened. What do you think it was? But they took it to the the next step and actually utilizing the Department of Health Services were able to analyze samples of these candle nuts, these, and were basically able to find that this product contained yellow oleander, which is not ideal. That's probably one of the things that if someone said, hey, Josh, do you want to take this mystery product or this yellow oleander? I'll probably choose the mystery product like 99% <laughs> of the time, unless the, unless the mystery product is also yellow oleander. So yeah, uh, yellow only is super, super duper uh, scary. You know, it is a, it's a cardiac steroid, very, very similar to sort of uh, like digoxin, for example. Um, and so the fact that this was in a product that someone could buy off the internet, you know, the question is who's taking this product that isn't coming to the hospital? Who is this person just, 
you know, found at home and they're not alive anymore and no one bothers to sort of dive into this. And so it's pretty concerning. I think this, this, this isn't super duper surprising that this happened to those of us who are in the know about supplements and things in the internet and quality control for products like this. But I'm sure everyone on the line right now has, has a, had a case of someone who took something that was from the internet that turned out to be a surprise product inside. What? In a good way. No, no, no. <laughs> internet is always 100% reliable. Yeah, really. So I really like to see that these authors did this. It was really cool. Thoughts? Deeply envious of their public health department being that helpful. We have gotten to work a lot with our health department, and they can do some really interesting testing. We've had them test products that we've seen create some pretty nasty effects in patients. And if we thought it was going to be a public health concern, they would do some product testing for us. We also collaborate with them. You know, we work to help track cases of Evoli. So we work together. We can provide stuff to them, data and patient tracking, and they can provide some really interesting testing. I've seen them do some pretty crazy uh, and very cool tests. You know, we're at a really unique intersect between public health and medical care. And so we're really lucky in Georgia. We have a great relationship with our public health department and are able to do similar things to this and have a good working relationship. But I think part of that comes from having toxicologists that are willing to get out there and work with with those folks. So yeah, I think it's a great case and a great, um, like you said, way to show that these two entities can work together. I I kind of want to just jump in here to provide number a huge pat on the back to one of our faculty, Dr. Justin Corcoran, who's been on the show bef- because in 2020, Dr. Corcoran published Fatal Yellow Oleander Poisoning Masquerading as Benign Candlenut Ingestion Taken for Weight Loss. And lo and behold, three years later, in, across the United States, the Maryland group was confronted with somebody who has a pretty clear toxidrome for a cardiac glycoside. And a quick search found this case report. And I do believe that that was the impetus of them getting authorities involved to actually test the product. So this abstract to me is a testament to what you can do with a case report. Even if you think something's like not all that exciting, just put it out there because it might be the first thing of many things to come. And then so I don't think the health department in the state where this was initially identified wanted to carry it forward, but it doesn't mean that it won't be the impetus of a different health department, which I guess with different priorities. So that's why I love this one. Yeah, it it does worry me to think what else, you know, this is just something we found or something that the authors are able to find had this product in it. Who, How many times has this product been purchased by who? Is there quality control being performed on all the other products? I mean, like, if one of my family members or friends or literally a random person on the street said, hey, like, w- is this worth taking? It might cause weight loss or it might kill you. I think we would all say probably not worth taking, right? I, I wouldn't take that. And so it's concerning. I wonder if this is still out there. I don't know. It's terrifying. I mean, how, mu- how much weight loss? How much weight <laughs> loss am I getting? All right. Well, I, th- I think that was a great abstract. Anybody else have any thoughts they wanted to bring up on that? That's incredible clinical care that they gave. I mean, they saw a person who was bradycardic hyperkalemic in the setting of some weird ingestion and quickly thought to send a dig concentration. I think there's a lot of places that doesn't happen really um, expeditiously. So they either knew their literature or they knew their tox differential uh, pretty quickly. And the person got outstanding care. So it's a cool case. Fantastic. Thank you for bringing that one up, Dr. Tribok. Uh, Dr. Kiernan, would you like to jump in with yours? Yeah, sure. Abstract number two. 
Efficacy of sodium tetrathionate when administered intramuscularly for the treatment of acute oral cyanide toxicity in a swine model. So my interesting case is a little bit different. This is actually dealing with cyanide and poisoning swine. So don't let all the PETA folks come after me. This is uh, under the FDA animal rule, so we're okay. But I think that this is an important one because a lot of people, and even in just talking to my residents, you know, you say cyanide and people think like, oh, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid or, uh, you know, taking a poison pill or poisoning your significant other, whatever it is. And again, like we know that there are antidotes for cyanide that we've been around forever. We have the cyanide antidote kit and then hydroxycobalamin is kind of our gold standard right now. But one of the things I think people don't think about is that that's going to be for like a one-time acute ingestion or acute gas exposure. But that might not be what we're dealing with. And again, pretty scary to think, but cyanide is actually a pretty significant chemical terrorism threat. Um, And not even that long ago, if you think back to kind of Osama bin Laden planning to poison salad bars and food supplies, and then ISIS a couple of years later, also kind of advising people to attack or inject food in markets with cyanide. So like, this is particularly scary because it would be very quickly lethal could easily lead to a mass casualty and go fairly unnoticed for a while and could potentially have a lot of people having to be treated very quickly. And so the current regimens that we have, right, like you need an IV, um, You're if you're giving hydroxycobalamin, it's a not a large volume, but larger, like you have to get an IV and give it through the IV. And so we don't, like our antidotes are fine. It's going to be a limited resource and they are for a very particular type of person. So if we have a mass casualty, if we're talking with our military folks, up, people that might be out in the field or our first responders, EMS, those antidotes might not be the most ideal thing. So the study was evaluating the efficacy of intramuscular administration of this antidote, sodium tetracyanate, in swine. And after the swine were given oral cyanide, and to analyze their survival compared to untreated swine. This group of toxicologists, authors, and institutions have really done some really important and significant work in this kind of antidote setting from mice studies to rabbits and also in large animal, these Yorkshire swine, which also felt appropriate because it's like Christmas themed NACTA abstract review, so Yorkshire swine. Um, So they were given... um, They were either, they were randomized into either getting uh, no treatment or an IM sodium thionate um, treated group. And they were, all the swine were um, poisoned with oral cyanide. And so at 120 minutes, the outcomes were either um, death or not dead. And at 120 minutes, 100% survival in the treatment group versus 0% in the control group. And again, so Definitely some limitations here, but showing again that they're working on these antidotes that potentially if you have an IM, like an auto injector or something, if you have a mass casualty um, oral ingestion, that this might be something that's a possibility. And I know the military folks are kind of looking into this and trying to identify the best ways to potentially roll this out in the future. So I think it's just, I think they're doing a lot of really good work kind of behind the scenes um, and it's not ready for prime time yet, but they're definitely making really large steps and Again, sort of just highlights also that toxicologists really have this role in antidote development and public health and seaburn, um, disaster preparedness and management. Um, and it's just another really cool thing that uh, 
We do. It, it wouldn't be an NACCT without reading about a cyanide antidote that I still don't have access to and an acetaminophen uh, test that I still can't order. But one day when it's there, you're going to you're going to feel left out at NAC. Something's going to be missing. So. I think it's awesome. It's so cool. And I here's what's really cool about NAC is I learn about a new antidote every year. It's so and they're they're always developing. I just want them to bring them to market. <laughs> So yeah, and I I am thrilled that the DOD is, I guess they're really concerned about mass cyanide exposure, but somebody should be. So that is good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Someone should be. It's too much Kool Aid in the world. <laughs> Never anyone brings up the Kool Aid. There is one toxicologist always, no matter where they are. The closest one, usually within a fifty mile radius, has to come over really quickly and say, "Actually, I think you mean Flavor Aid." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks Um, for being that toxicologist. Two things, my perspective. One, all those episodes, particularly in Japan with that cult, the the ones that did the sarin gas attack. I know I don't know how to pronounce the name. Shun Ryukyo or something. You know, every time we try to do mass poisonings with agents like cyanide, they can be given as a gas or or in other modalities, water, you either can't get the concentrations you need or people see people fall over and they run away and you get trauma victims. And and I, I was alive and an adult when the Tunnel murders happened in Chicago. The other really good one would be the uh, new Stockholm uh, church poisoning where a bunch of elderly people died from cyanide. And really, what, the numbers are not gigantic and the ability to the money that would be spent on supplying everybody in the military with this. And then you have to talk about, I don't know where they took, were they going for 10 ml because that was a restriction for intramuscular injections in humans, which is sort of true, but not entirely true. If you have not actually read the abstract, Frank is referring to the fact that the intramuscular doses given to these pigs were 10 milliliters in volume. Or was it for the dose? Because 45 to 50 kilo pigs are not my patients. I'm looking at 25 to 45 mil IM injections. So, uh, you know, it's not bad idea. I'm glad they're doing it. Something would be nice to have someday if we happen to be there. The second said, you know, the person walked into triage and said, I'm swallowing cyanide right now. But uh, to me, it was meh. I mean, if I had to choose between having two Pam in all of my CDC stockpiles or this, I think I would go with this. I mean, we already have two Pam everywhere. Why not add in another antidote that does at least decent? I will say that I am uh, like Ryan. I'm very I always get excited when I see these like new antidotes. I feel like it's like hearing about like a movie that's going to come out like 10 years and you like wait for it. And then you find out that like, you know, that one of the actors quit. And then like they, I don't know, it somehow fell under or they're still filming. And you're like, what, what did, did I hear about this movie coming out? I thought I did. And so I hope this doesn't fall uh, into the similar, similar sort of stuff. I feel like this could, this has potential to be quite interesting, but I guess we'll have to see, see if it, uh, see if the movie comes out. Where's Cobinamide? That's, I've been waiting for Cobinamide to come out. This is the sequel to Cobinamide and I, the, the primary hasn't come out yet. There, yeah. I mean, it brings up great points. IM is probably the route for mass casualty, not this, not IV, which is all we have available. But I'm curious, does this work the same way? Or is this one where it's going to bind and create thiocyanate? For cyanide detoxification, so you can give hydroxycobalamin, which is what we do right now. We give it IV, binds the cyanide, and makes cyanocobalamin. Or cobinamide, the IM injection that can actually uh, bind multiple cyanide molecules as opposed to one. And then there's sodium thiosulfate, which 
create thiocyanate and then you urinate out. And there's a whole bunch of conflicting literature if that even really helps eliminate cyanide as opposed to cobinamide binds it creates. I, I, I think it's think. it's the it's the thiol groups. It's just yeah, it's making thiocyanate. Yeah, so that's what's interesting is like sodium thiosulfate doesn't work as well as hydroxycobalamin does to make these four pigs would disagree. <laughs> well, these guys didn't have a cobinamide comparator. So that's what's really interesting. This one is great in that it showed it does prevent death, but would it do so more so than hydroxycobalamin? Or maybe that'll be in the next writer's room for this movie coming out. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Kieran. I appreciate that you are always not only forward thinking, but concerned about the bioterror health of the population. Thanks, Ryan. Dr. Comstock, would you like to roll in with our next abstract? Let's do it. Abstract number 10. Is our enough after out-of-hospital naloxone for opioid overdose? Prospective preliminary data from real-world implementation of the modified St. Paul's early discharge rule. Hey everybody, it's Ryan, and I am interrupting just to provide a little bit of background on what the hour rule or the St. Paul's early discharge criteria is that this study was evaluating. Dr. Comstock is really going to dive into the specifics, but if you haven't heard of what this rule is, it's basically a clinical decision rule to decide if a person is ready to go home after they were given naloxone for an opioid overdose, right? If you've overdosed on opioids, we can reverse that with naloxone, but that naloxone can actually wear off. So the clinical conundrum of a patient who received naloxone from EMS shows up to the emergency department and looks totally fine. Can they go home? Well, some people would wait five to six hours to ensure the naloxone is totally out of their system before saying, oh, you'll be okay. And others would try to develop tools like the hour rule to determine who might be okay for discharging early. Okay, back to Dr. Comstock. So I chose, if I can find it, abstract number 10 from Stephen Douglas and uh, some Minnesotans. And I chose this article because not necessarily this project, but many of its predecessors get brought up on shift in the emergency department by residents who say we need to watch this patient for x amount of time they'll either quote uh, the saint paul early dis discharge rule or they'll quote the hour study and they'll say that's why i'm choosing blank and we walk through the data we walk through the limitations of those data we walk through the fact that that was a different era and how perhaps it's time for some new data so i was excited to see somebody taking on the the charge of, of gleaning some new data in what is very clearly a very different drug market than was around when a lot of those earlier decision rules came around. If you think back to the hour trial and before, a lot of those overdoses were heroin. Obviously, that's a very different world now where we've got fentanyl abounding, as well as a lot of the other novel psychoactive things that are existing in our drug market to include xylazine, nitazines, long-acting, weird benzodiazepines, you name it. It's a weird world. And so does a, a non-weird decision rule still apply? Did it ever apply? I don't know. Um, but does it apply now? And so that was the, the question they're asking. So they looked at patients who had received naloxone and they looked at them an hour after they had gotten their naloxone for uh, whether or not they had met the hour criteria. And they also looked at whether clinician Gestalt said that these patients were safe for discharge. And as a quick reminder, the hour criteria is not just like, are you good to go after an hour? It's a set of six objective-ish criteria that you can utilize with a bunch of yes, no boxes and say, this patient's good to go. Those six criteria are, they can mobilize as usual. They have a normal oxygen set, normal respiratory rate between 10 and 20, normal temperature, normal heart rate, and they have a GCS of 15. And so if you check all those boxes, then these patients can go home. Um, and as a quick reminder, with the hour trial that came out and now, I don't know, six or seven years ago, it was 
deemed to be sensitive-ish. It had a sensitivity in the mid-80s, and their authors kind of concluded that, yes, maybe this is helpful, but a lot of people have looked at it and said, look, mid-80s uh, sensitivity for, for potentially needing additional naloxone um, is probably not sensitive enough. And so it was, it was maybe put on the back burner for a lot of folks clinically, but still gets brought up quite a bit um, in the emergency department. So for the outcome in this study, and again, this is a preliminary look at their data. This is not the end. So they're still, I, I think they're still actively enrolling patients into this prospective study. But they enrolled 20, 220 patients because about half of them had received their naloxone intravenously. Another about a quarter had gotten uh, naloxone from bystanders, so intranasal. And ultimately, 41 out of the 220 met the hour criteria. And of those 41 patients, only one had an adverse event. Now, it's a really weird case. So this patient meant to insufflate cocaine. After that event, they became unresponsive. They got three doses of intramuscular naloxone and three minutes of CPR. And it's hard to understand how somebody thought this patient would have been good to go after an hour, but but that's what happened. But they realized that the patient was supposed to have gotten an x-ray. They then ordered the x-ray, and while awaiting their x-ray, they became hypoxic. They needed additional doses and eventually an infusion of naloxone, I think for about seven hours, and eventually discharged from the uh, hospital, it neurointact and doing just fine. I think they said about 18 hours later. So a couple of thoughts. So first major thought I, I have is it's documented in some of the prior trials how these patients are using, they document whether they're insufflating, injecting, uh, or they're taking enterally. And they do document that that patient um, who did fail the hour criteria, he'd insufflated. But would it be really interesting to know whether or not they have the data about how these patients were using? Because frankly, I wouldn't even try to apply something like this in a patient who's using their opioid enterally. The concern for, for longer duration of absorption and and a greater risk for delayed respiratory depression. And then the other thought I have is their follow-up data. So they list that they have follow-up data on 28 out of these 41 patients who met the hour criteria. And then they say, in general, we're pretty confident these other patients did just fine because they're not dead in their EMR review. And that feels like a bit of a leap of faith to me to say like, yeah, I glanced in Epic and I didn't get that really sad like alert that comes up that says, sorry, you're entering the chart of a deceased patient. Do you still want to proceed? And you say, yeah, I guess so. Uh, like that's what they're using to say these patients are not having adverse events. So this feels a little flimsy to me. I'd say really they only have follow-up data on 28 patients who they could get in touch with on the phone uh, the next day. And, and so I think their denominator is actually incorrect in this. And I, I think they probably need to revisit that number. So I think a, they're documenting a two-ish percent failure rate. I think even they in their conclusions say that's probably not good enough. So I say kudos to them. I think they're very well interpreting their data correctly. But I, I'd say I'm not sure I agree with them on the denominator. Um, and so when I look at this, I think, you know, certainly I, I didn't use the St. Paul early discharge rule already, and I will continue to not use it. It's probably a helpful set of kind of reminders of what makes a patient a normal-ish looking patient. If they can walk, if they can drink, if their vital signs are normal, then they're probably okay to go. But I think to lean real heavily into these decision rules uh, for something that's that's a pretty, uh, it's a decision with a lot of gravity attached to it. When you think about development of recurrent uh, opioid toxicity, I, I certainly don't think the application of these decision rules is, is for me necessarily. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you said it exactly well. I think when I was I was reading this, I was like, I was going to be disappointed if the conclusions were the opposite of what they had said. If they were like, oh, that's actually a pretty acceptable, you know, miss rate. I was like, no, that is not, uh, in my opinion, especially not for this. I thought your your evaluation was really um, uh, very consistent with my own. So I don't think I have too much more to add. But I was just going to say, you said it exactly as eloquently as I was going to say it. Oh. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, no. I think you bring up a great point in that when we looked at heroin and how much naloxone was needed for heroin, a lot of the denominators in those were medical examiner data showing, hey, you know, this was treat and release from paramedic data, where if a paramedic gives someone naloxone, do they even need to go to the ER back in the heroin days? But the heroin's not around anymore. I mean, it is. Heroin's there, but the rate of resedation is maybe one of the few signals we are seeing in how the opioid landscape is changing in some of these really high potency or highly lipophilic substances. So. One of the reasons I brought it up is, boy, during the presentation of this at NACT, it got a lot of real excited comments. And so I think there's a lot of people who are looking for this to go into prime time. I'm pumping the brakes as it stands with the abstract, and I will probably continue to pump the brakes even with the final papers out. I couldn't agree more. I'm honestly surprised amongst toxicologists, that, especially with the way we're going and all of the data we're getting with, a, you know, with naloxone and opioid use disorder and overdoses, that everyone was more on board with this. I could see like kind of what we're saying, like the ER doctors, you know, trying to get our dispo, trying to get people out the door, trying to be more on board with this. But it, it's shocking that um, at the conference, people were more excited about this. What's wild yeah, is that I, people are still using the hour criteria, even though it had an 85% sensitivity. You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of wild that we're using it to begin with. Um, it's honestly it's better with the data they got, but. Um, I, I don't like the rule. Not nowadays. I was trained initially to, you know, we'd watch all these folks for six hours, which I think is also as inane and arbitrary as anything else. And I don't think they all necessarily need that. But I, I just think this is an area where there's probably not a nice standardized replacement for clinician gestalt, unfortunately. That at least has some mechanistic rationale. You're waiting for naloxone, you know, giving your half-lives a, a good chance to eliminate all of it. But I agree. It's great points to bring up. Uh, since we're at the halfway point, I think it's time for a few honorable mentions before we go into any more. I believe, Dr. Kiernan, you brought this one up, uh, number 140. Poster titles at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology 2013 to 2022. Is NACCT experiencing a pandemic? The, uh, <laughs> I actually felt like this was taking aim at you. Really? <laughs> um... Full disclosure, I reviewed this abstract when I was look like when I was a NAC abstract reviewer and I gave him a pun back to it and um, <laughs> he called me out on it. This was basically just a review of all the poster titles and how many of them contained punny wordplay within them. And it actually seems like 2023 was the punniest year of all time. The rates of puns in poster titles has been increasing literally every single year. I personally believe this is largely driven by Minnesota, uh, as well as a few <laughs> other, <laughs> a few other I'd groups. I'd like to point out that two of the fir the first two authors on that are trained in Atlanta. This Dr. is true, and Dr. Elizabeth Silver. So I think Atlanta is part of the problem. This is impressive. I remember one of the Illinois groups abstract about carbon monoxide poisoning from boat motors was carbon monoxide is something to talk about so i think they're a contributor as well i am actually and i'll i'll take the heat for this i am anti-pun in the title uh, you can put it like in the in the actual thing but if i'm doing like a systematic review and i have to interpret a riddle to figure out what the paper is about i don't know it it depends i feel like i don't know if it's the toxicology field as a whole or not like what are what are the what are the dermatologists doing in their papers or like what are the what are the pathologists or what are the cardiologists doing because i remember when i was a fellow 
I wrote up a paper and one of our faculty was like, oh, you got to make it like a super cute pun title, whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. So I did that and submitted it and it immediately got rejected. And they were like, please refrain from using cute or puns in titles. And I was like, come on, man. I was like, I'm just doing what I'm told. So I don't know. Is it a tax thing? Like, is this a, we need to have a, this needs to be discussed at our next meeting. I think this is a positive trend. <laughs> but this is, I think we are one of the worst dressed uh, and nerdiest of all the specialties. And so the opportunity to add a little bit of uh, levity into the titles that are otherwise not blank, 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 colon, blank, 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 question mark, which is exactly what this title is. Otherwise, the, the pun in there, it's a welcome change. I look forward to more. Dr. Kiernan, are you, I know you are the highest pun utilizer I've ever met. Thank but you. Are you a pun user in your titles? I am. I okay. am. And I just, I want to make sure that you're okay. I mean, are you feeling okay? The fact that you are getting angry about people putting puns in their titles makes me worry about your wellness a little bit. Fun. And no, I'm not anti-fun. I'm I'm pro-pun in in some scenarios. I like, I like when we sneak puns in. I don't like them so overt. I tried to write a paper about vasopressors. And you know how everyone does those cool abbreviations? We came up with a really out of this world name for the title. Also, we could spell out Vin Diesel in the title. And, oh. uh, I ended up not getting accepted with that title, which was a little annoying, but all right. Well, thank you for that sidetrack. That was, um, everyone is allowed to pun. You're, you're making me turn my, my mind around a little bit. Ryan just wants everyone to send him their titles before publishing or submitting any future abstracts. Is that correct, Ryan? Yeah, that was, uh, the appropriate interpretation. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. Any, uh, if you are ever thinking about doing anything, please send me the title of it for my approval. Okay. The next abstract that we were going to talk about was a rivastigmine abstract. But Dr. Polachek joined us at the last minute. So I was going to assign him a random rivastigmine abstract. But knowing his knowing his high standard for research abstract, I'm not sure I want him to present one that he did not choose himself as I don't want any authors uh, or abstracts getting dragged through the mud without their ability to rebuttal. <laughs> so no dragging the random the random authors on the page. Yeah, yeah. Well, at my advanced age, it gets harder. <laughs> we can point out limitations. There's been a ton of abstracts at NAC this year. On using it for anticholinergic delirium. This is huge now. Pfizer's been out. And I'm just curious what all of your takes are. Dr. Polachek. I I have not found the need to jump on physostigmine as commonly as some other uh, poison centers and people have and to use it as often. Um, rivastigmine offers some mild advantages. Everyone seems to love this. Everyone's doing it in my world, EM pharmacy. And I just like, no. And I need you guys to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. You're anti-revastigmine? Is this what we're getting here? You were you were of the days of FISO. You've probably given more FISO than most people in this room because it's been Well, no, I only gave it once in my life back then. Really? Yeah, it was for a plant. No, I am. I'm not anti. People have to. I am not anti-physostigmine. I'm not anti-revastigmine. I am anti the sudden popularity of a new antidote or a new anecdotal therapy and everybody using it all the time whenever they can, and they do it thoughtlessly. Are you talking about femepazole? <laughs> Boo. I, I didn't say femepazole. You want to talk I, about femepazole? I thought you were already kidding. I like femepazole, but that's different than just being an antidote. I'm in the small camp of people that thinks it's adjunctive therapy that promotes hepatic regeneration. All right, all right. We're not going into femepazole. <laughs> well, you open the door. I know, I know. Okay. I'm not anti-Fizo, anti-Rivastigmine, anti-cholinergic, any of like any of those things. But I mean, 
putting on the transdermal, at least in some of the steady state data that I've seen and looking back at in the Alzheimer's literature and other places that they use this, I, I think that people had similar efficacy to the pill, but also had higher nausea and vomiting, which isn't really something that I want in my really delirious patients. And I'm also like, I love getting FISO. It's a fun party trick, especially when you're like, you have EM residents that have never seen an anticholinergic patient, and then you wake them up and they go back down. But like, in reality, like, does it really change a whole lot of your management um, time wise? Just playing devil's advocate. Like, do I agree? Like, do we need to be jumping in and giving this to everyone? Um, or should we really just let them be a little anticholinergic and, and hang out until they metabolize their drug and treat them with benzos like we do with everything else? Yeah, Emily, I agree with you. I think uh, when I was in fellowship, uh, the people who who trained me would always say that phisostigmine has never saved anybody's life, uh, and I would I would agree with that. I feel like it probably reduces a lot of the the agitation, and you know, if someone's going to get themselves into trouble from being anticholinergic, it's either the agitation, the muscle breakdown, they're getting too toasty, and or uh, hyperthermic. I probably should use the Use my doctor words. So I I, I agree um, with uh, Emily and Frank. Just throwing the patch at people who have like who just look anticholinergic um, might not be the best approach. I think there is a role for for this, especially given the the Pfizer shortage that we find ourselves in. I don't think it's something that should be abandoned completely. But I think picking it up is being like, oh, this is a cool new thing to do. If you have dilated pupils after taking diphenhydramine, you get a rivastigmine patch, right? Like that's not that's not the way to go. I think I think there's a world in which Riva is a cool uh, add-on to this patient population where you've got the person who's sitting delirious after their big diphenhydramine overdose. They're stuck getting a bunch of benzos or whatever for days and days, and then eventually they come around and they do just fine the way all these patients do. Is there a way in which this patient can be mobilized to psychiatry earlier, where you give them a pill, you slap a patch, and they still have the patch and they're still getting a cholinergic medication, and if they have reached a point of not being super-duper delirious and their vitals are fine, they can just go to to psych with a patch on and that's to me where i would i would see the ultimate benefit of <clears throat> of reva which is a benefit that pfizer doesn't offer you can't send somebody on a pfizer infusion to to psychiatry so i think there's there's a world in which i think um reva's actually got the potential for benefit over pfizer but so, no psych patient yeah. whoever is feeling really anticholinergic and good would take off that patch midway through their psych hospitalization take the restraints that's off and leave the mitts on leave the mitts yeah, on yeah so yeah, I agree. Efficacy. There's probably lots of questions. There are probably still questions with FISO's efficacy, and that has a lot more data. You know, Riva is another avenue here. And I do think all of these case reports and case series that are coming out in the NACT abstracts every year do provide at least one useful thing. And that's if you're about to recommend this, you probably want to know if anybody has died or had some serious adverse effect. And I have not read in any of these abstracts or any of the case series. Some in this year, we had case series as large as 30 people who got rivastigmine. I know I've read some papers published in JMT with at least uh, 30 people who got rivastigmine. And nobody seems to be dying or really having any described adverse effects. Now, it's not exactly pharmacovigilance data. And you know, I don't know how many doses of physostigmine were given before we saw those two cases of asystole, you know, temporally associated with severe TCA overdose. But I mean, it just in theory, like seems like the safety profile of rivastigmine is actually better. I'm not giving an IV drug, you know, are we going to start seeing people have seizures or something later? I, that's possible. So far, it doesn't appear to be harming anyone. And I think that's at least uh, useful data when and how to use it. That's a whole other story. I am more curious about like, when are these patches getting removed and what are the effects afterward? Yeah. Sure. Okay. 
think that brings us back to the top of the round robin, which is me, I believe. And this is going to be a really quick one. Abstract number five randomized human trial of an EB001 CB1 receptor antagonist in three doses of cannabis. This is uh, first author Andrew Monty, done by the RMPDS group. I know a couple people from there. Interesting folks. And uh, I'm going to summarize this real quick for y'all. They made a naloxone for weed, everybody. We're going to save the U.S. Uh, But honestly, this is fascinating. So this is actually a CB1 receptor antagonist, right? And that is where Delta 9 THC works. That is where all those little kids who just ate a massive bag of weed Oreos and are now sitting uh, in whatever medical floor or ICU, that's the receptor that's being agonized there. So wouldn't it be amazing if we could just hit them with uh, a CB1 receptor antagonist and let them go sit at home or somewhere else? So that's kind of where I see the future, the future benefit of this. This, If we're going to put things into sections, this is under antidotes I still don't have access to, but it's a pretty interesting study. So randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So it was a dose escalation of both THC and the antagonist, which is ANEB001. It was done in the Netherlands in like a closed unit. Kind of interesting. Experienced cannabis users got a couple of different doses of THC. Uh, they could have gotten 10.5. Uh, in another part of the study, they could have gotten all the way up to 40 milligrams of THC. And then they were given it with 50 milligrams of ANEB001 or 100 milligrams of ANEB001. And then they also did a few other cohorts where they actually uh, gave the THC and then gave the antidote an hour later. And then they just assessed their outcomes using visual analog scales, as well as a few other scales for basically, in layman's terms, assessing how high you are. What they found here was, unsurprisingly, ANEB001 was well tolerated and rapidly reversed the effects of THC. It reversed it whether you gave it at the exact same time as THC or if you waited an hour and then gave um, the the reversal agent. So I see this having massive utility because in the American Poison Center's annual report last year for the first time ever showed that THC gummies surpassed uh, plant-based marijuana for exposures reported to U.S. poison centers, and that was driven almost entirely by little toddlers gobbling up weed gummies. So uh, there is a huge burden in healthcare of kids sitting in children's hospital beds, sometimes for days, because they're taking actually pretty big doses, sometimes getting into whole bags of gummies and just being kind of too sedated to go home. If we're talking about real exposures that we need an antidote for, this would be a big one. This is like developing an antidote for alcohol. I see a lot of TikTok influencers saying they have that. Not a real thing. This could be a real thing. But I don't know how long this lasts. I don't know how it deals with someone who ate an entire bag of weed Doritos. I have lots of questions. What do you guys think? I think it's super interesting. And I agree completely. I would love to see this specifically for a pediatric population. Uh, because I think those are the people we've seen the most... Certainly, I've seen the most morbidity uh, with with respect to these with these gummies, because I'll be honest, when I was a kid, like I 100% would eat like floor candy or uh, any any sort of gummies or whatever I could find. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that we're seeing kids get into a lot of these products. And what's particularly challenging with these uh, 
you know, THC, these cannabinoid gummies is that as we've seen kids get super duper, uh, they can get super duper sick, sometimes like bradycardias and apneas. And even worse is that even if like, that's what the history that they've taken one of the gummies, but sometimes we see these kids come in and no one knows what happened. And so they end up getting, you know, an EEG and an MRI, but then they, since they're like, you know, very little, they have to be intubated for it and this whole thing. And then they're up in the ICU. And so it's a lot of um, healthcare resources too. And it would be wonderful if there was just a reversible reversal agent that could be given. So I am super excited to, uh, to, to see what the future holds for this. Hopefully there aren't any untoward effects that happen in, in the pediatric population when, in, when this is used um, in particular. And I guess, you know, I'm not saying adults don't, don't deserve to have an antidotal therapy aware, available to them as well. But if I had to pick a, a patient population where I'm seeing more morbidity, I would say definitely eager to see what happens with this with respect to the pediatric population. Interesting. But I mean, we need to see, does it work in people <laughs> who are sick? You're going to have trouble getting the FDA to a- approve this product because of concerns about it being used in uh, or having a company bring it into the U.S. Kind of like there was issues with flumazenol when it first came out. Um, in terms of it facilitating alcohol abuse or other drug abuse where people would just take the antidote and then uh, feel they were safe to drive, go drive and come back. I mean, you may or may not know, but the original name for Flamazenil was Reversed because it was made by the same company as Versed and it was supposed to be, but the their legal department said uh, we were part of the original trials um, for indiscriminate overdoses. Their legal said, no, there's the risk management there is too high that people will use it to to draw it. We can't afford insurance costs there. Um, Interesting. I, yeah, I just, I think they, they gave people enough to test the the high. <laughs> and, and, and so the visual analog scale and all that is fine, but they didn't actually give, they couldn't, I suppose, give them enough to make sure that there was uh actual symptoms to reverse and so we don't know the symptom reversing doses and we don't know their safety yet that this is a proof of concept it's a good place to start yeah it's an appetizer i'm looking forward to more yeah because right now it doesn't apply to the patient population that i would want to see it in just like everybody else here said and, and i think one of the comments that was made at nacct is you're out of the concert you smoke a joint too many and you want to be able to get home you just pop in yeah. one of these pills and you're good to rock or good to go um, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of interest if, I mean, if, if it works as well as it looks in this abstract, it looks like it works great. There's going to be a lot of interest in using this in not just the really sick toddler who got into mom and dad's gummies. I think there's, you know, to Frank's point, there's going to be people who want to use this for all sorts of other things. And I don't think that's wrong if it works and is safe, but it's, it's not close to being there. And so it'll be really fascinating to watch as this goes forward, see where it goes and who wants to get a hold of it. Right. I assume this would come out as prescription only initially although sure. that right that doesn't necessarily mean people aren't just going to get it from other sources and also you look at i mean drugs like ozembic but like you know there is a proper indication and then if people want it they will find it and get it whether right. they indication or not so indication creep <laughs> that yeah your concierge medicine doctor is going to give you ozempic and then the thc reversal agent so you can Living your best life. What if you just put the Ozempic and the THC reversal agent in a product called Indian Nuts for Weight Loss? <laughs> hey. Can the company be called Indication Creep? Ooh, <laughs> oh, yeah. That might be a band. <laughs> I like this.
fantastic well i just think yeah it's interesting you know like yeah i do worry about cyanide you know exposures throughout the u.s and having antidotes for that but there's also a whole bunch of kids in beds you know too high from eating weed gummies this could be an interesting thing concern yeah okay who's up now oh look at this we're so for the audience uh you can't see but i'm sharing an image i'm sharing the pdf and we just talked about abstract number five and then abstract number six is another great one alcohol related recidivism following emergency department associated naltrexone dr grant comstock which we're not talking about today because we decided it wasn't important enough sorry mercilessly (laughs) excluded from the discussion you guys are haters uh i do want to point out that everyone on this minus maybe frank uh, did some amazing research this year so please uh peruse the abstracts and frank has already done a lot of amazing research and written a lot of books so he doesn't have to do it anymore but uh, uh i'm just not publishing what i'm doing in my neighborhood that's all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh you feel free to peruse and everyone should be checking out the abstract and the pdf to the where for every one of these 360 abstracts as I'm sure I'm going to mention in the beginning of the show, is available at clintox.org under uh, NACCT. You can find a free PDF there. Okay. Who's up next? I think we went uh, Dr. Trebach next. I think it's me. Yeah. Uh, it's timely after our talk about rivastigmine. This is abstract number 216. Successful use of expired physostigmine to treat anticholinergic delirium in a pediatric patient i thought this was a cute little cute little abstract because uh, I, I enjoy when people put stuff out there that we think is uh that people a lot of people should know slash already know already uh and so this is um number 216 successful use of expired physostigmine to treat anticholinergic delirium in a pediatric patient uh i know some of the authors on this uh, they're all cool people uh so what this uh paper this this abstract describes is you know, we know that we are in in the uh, United States right now, going through a FISO dilemma right now, because our sole distributor, the manufacturer, the pharmaceutical company, stopped uh, making it and they closed permanently. And so, a lot of FISO stigmine that people still have is either uh, not not existent or it uh, probably expired in like 2021. And so, the question is, can we still use this? And I think. This is something that I feel like people do call the poison control center, not just for like FISO, but just expired drugs in general. Like whether this is a home call, like, oh, I took an amoxicillin that expired last year as a safe, or I'm pretty sure when I went home to visit my my family, there was like a like ty- acetaminophen from like the 90s or something. Clearly it had been expired. Um, though these questions come in. Um, but so this paper describes a can we still use an expired medication? And is this a potential avenue we can pursue if people didn't want to do a rivastigmine patch or weren't on on team patch and wanted to go down using their FISO? So this case report uh, abstract describes a 16-year-old patient who came to the emergency department after ingesting a bunch of medications, uh, sertraline, cyclobenzaprine, oxycodone, procloperazine. And their physical exam was what they described as a uh, mixed serotonergic and anticholinergic. The patient had delirium, dry mucous membranes, uh, non-reactive mydriasis, tachycardia, and then some some clonus as well. So I can see how they ha- had come to that conclusion. Uh, sounds like the patient received benzodiazepines and then received the expired physostigmine uh, twice and was able to be uh, able to interact with their family and was significantly improved uh, supposedly afterwards. And so 
I think the reason this caught my eyes because I think in if I had done this slash have I have I given medications that have been expired but are still indicated and we have no other choice? I, I, yes, I've been in that situation before. But have I ever thought to publish it? I don't think so. And so I'm glad that people did because if oftentimes if I want like if I wanted to give a medication, for example, that was expired, I, I can think of previous institutions where I've worked at where it doesn't matter what I want. <laughs> if it's expired, I'm not getting it, right? And so it's nice to be able to bring up an abstract or something that is put in a publication that says, hey, look, like you can do this and people can do, people can, you know, they're not going to explode because they received the medication that expired, right? And so uh, I know that, especially in the world of toxicology, where we have our quote antidotes or some of our rarer medications that aren't really given uh, as often, this is something we have to consider. And and so I'm just curious if anyone else has any other thoughts or has run into a uh, uh, the the trouble that comes with giving expired medications or in scenarios like this. We just had a kid who was a, a pediatric lead and succimer is on shortage. And so same thing, the only succimer that we really had available is expired. Um, but again, sometimes, I mean, what is what really is an expired medication? I mean, because all of the studies that they do, right, it's just looking at like when the product is supposed to or how long does it remain stable and retain like the exact strength that they tested up into that day. But, you know, if you take it on day 100 and it expired or day 101 and expired a day 100, like, does it really change the efficacy? Well, then you die. Then you die immediately. Yeah, you explode, I believe. But I know. Someone from Team Pass would say that. They have to state that it's expired if it's degraded more than 95% of the labeled amount. But they can date it earlier than that if they like. It, they only test for so long. Then they dated that they could have tested further. So it's to save money and maybe per, maybe make money by promoting renewed sales. Um, there was a paper many, many years ago published out of the Pittsburgh Poison Center, Ed Krenzlock and his group, where they took, please give whatever Ipecac you have in your house to your pediatric child who just swallowed that dangerous thing. And they were able to identify that Ipecac that was 17 years past expiration date was still pharmacologically active and elicited the appropriate response. And there was a bunker in Germany from World War II where uh, German medical supplies were found, including atropine to treat, you may have seen this, atropine to treat uh, gas poisonings. And that, that thing buried underground for 45 years still had pharmacologic potency. So yeah. I think, um, I don't know what you all do. Uh, we don't routinely use expired meds unless we're forced to sort of like this, the lead case, uh, Emily, you were just describing. But uh, my colleague and I in the ED, any med that we think we are likely to have shortages with or high criticality, low use, we, with the cooperation of our storage tech, perhaps hide expired vials. Not that that would ever be admitted, and never would that be found anywhere in the hospital, but since the College of Pharmacy is 15 feet away from the hospital, perhaps in somebody's office, should there ever be a mass epidemic. And I think that's a situation where it's likely to occur. Expired meds were used in uh, New Orleans during Katrina. If you haven't heard that, it was all word of mouth, but it was done. And when you have that kind of setting, I have no hesitation at doing it. The worst I risk is it won't work or I have to give more. This is a good infrastructure for the U.S. in severe need is you got you to gotta raid pharmacy professor offices and the no, you have to have hired a pharmacist who works in the ED who would have the common sense to do this sort of thing. 
I mean, we hold vials, we hold expired stuff all the time because we know like the FDA will ev- eventually post date it and say, ah, yeah, yeah, you can use it. We tested this batch and we've given expired dry. Sometimes you have anti venom from a zoo and they're like, yeah, I'm only sending you yeah. my expired stuff. And you're like, well, I can't tell you what to send me. And I'm not going to, you know, you say you got to give it if their patient is having symptoms. There's only been one thing that I know of where giving expired drug potentially caused harm. And that was, yeah, and we don't even know for sure. And it was tetracyclines and, you know, Fanconi syndrome. And that was a long time ago. I will say IV makes me more nervous than oral, but even then I'm really not concerned. So this IV physostigmine is really interesting. There was a study uh, also of um, naloxone that was on ambulances since 1980. And it was like they tested it all and it was all completely fine. So it turns out drugs are super stable, guys. We don't have to worry about it. Why are we even bothered? I, th- I think it's the word expire carries a lot of weight there. Because if someone was like, would you eat this expired burrito? I'd be like, probably not. How but if someone like, do you want this expired? Well, I guess it depends how hungry I am. You already admitted you were a floor candy person. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I've said too much about myself. But like expired medication doesn't cause the same level of like like a uh, repulsiveness that like ex- you know when we use expired to talk about other things like food for example that sounds bad and dangerous to like eat expired food or something but like expired you know if, uh medications uh, I, I i don't know it's just the word i think that sometimes can can cause people to to be concerned when really there's not really been aside from yeah the tetracyclines and possible fanconi but i can't think of other anything else really well, we do hold ourselves to a high level of regulation in the United States, whether it's good or bad. I mean, it does. It is one of the good things where when you get a drug, you know what you're getting. And I think that's good. But when we run out of that ability, uh, you know, well, at least for prescription drugs, when you run out of that uh, uh, option, sometimes you have to come up with other things. I do believe I talked to the lead author here, Brian Hayes, who a lot of people probably know of as a noted EM pharmacist. Um, and I believe they had ethics involved in this decision. Which I don't know how I could functionally operationalize getting ethics involved in it. Well, how did ethics approve it then? I'm sorry. I like Brian, but I don't understand how in this patient, the decision to give a total of two milligrams of, of uh, lorazepam 45, you know, and the, the two are separated, you know, one milligram, 45 minutes apart that warranted using uh, the physostigmine was given enough. That somewhere along here, they thought they could go with expired. I don't think anywhere do I read in this case report that they hit some kind of commonly accepted benzodiazepine dosing limit. Well, some people are of the stance that benzos are not the preferred in this scenario. There is good data. There's a randomized control trial that shows that patients. You know, on the next meeting we're at, you and I can sit at a table and talk about that paper. I like we're dancing. Can, the, yeah, the one out of Colorado, they showed that it was a little bit better for actually managing their delirium mechanistically. I know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I could see. <laughs> I'm just playing a little devil's advocate. I could see where they're coming from. Yeah. But it is interesting. Am I the only one that got an email from the FDA saying that there was a temporary importation of FISO? No, oh, no, no, no. We we're, were already getting okay, it. Right? Like, okay. Right, it's coming keep talking about it like it's this ghost but i mean it's making a comeback yeah it's it's a comeback because you all are demanding it Ugh. <laughs> Sorry. hey let's say it could 
So there is data that shows there's less ICU admission when you use this. Just it was retrospective. So uncontrolled. Yeah, I know. I love uncontrolled data. It lets me confirm all my biases without ever having to really do a deep dive into what I think. <laughs> if you were if you were anticholinergic, would you rather have benzos or ex- expired burrito, expired physostigmine? I want a Rivastigmine pack. <laughs> you want to watch Riva? Of course he does. He likes being delirious and agitated. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Look, we we can feasibly get through one more abstract here. Okay. I'll behave. Um, and we have Dr. Kiernan and Dr. Comstock left. Who wants to talk about it more? Should you guys rock paper scissors live? We, we can, can do that. Let's do it. Wait, it's before be... you go, is it rock, paper, scissors, shoot, or it's is it shoot. rock, paper? Oh, yeah. We commonly accept it, I assume. <laughs> paper, scissors, shoot. Since you listeners at home can't see this, please imagine a rock, paper, scissors battle of epic proportions, while each contender fought valiantly. Dr. Kinnan threw a fatal blow with rock against Dr. Comstock's cutting scissors. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. There's a little bit of a hesitation move over there, but I appreciate the, the technique. <laughs> it was definitely the Zoom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unstable internet. Yeah, there's a delay. All right, let's hear it. It's okay. We, we might we might be able to do both. This one, actually, I didn't even send this one to you, Ryan, but it was one that I found a little scary when I was at NACCT. Um, so maybe we can try and squeeze both in real quick. Abstract number 202. Enough negativity. Clinically significant salicylism with first detectable concentration 12 hours post-ingestion. Like we know salicylates can cause abusor in the stomach and you can have some delayed absorption. Um, but I found this very concerning because compared to what our poison center guidelines are, um, they had a 19 year old patient who came in after ingesting, I guess, first red flag, 78, 325 milligram aspirin uh, tab. So that's like 25 grams, 30 minutes prior to coming in. Uh, but it was asymptomatic and had, I would say like four or five levels drawn and they were all negative up to 12 hours. And then, you know, for whatever reason, later on, they checked another one like 12 hours later and then the level went up and it ultimately peaked at 55 looks like. So just the, just a reminder, kind of a scary reminder that absorption, like aspirin absorption can be delayed and is erratic and does love to form bezoars in the stomach. And then they, they actually looked at a, another paper that was published where they looked at 313 aspirin poison patients and 3.5% of them had initial undetectable level. And then went on to have a clinically significant level and one of those patients died. So again, just quick, you know, reminder that um, aspirin is an over-the-counter med that can still throw you through a loop. That paper made me sad, made me feel sad things. Yeah, we've had one of these. We've definitely had one of these. I think it's something, I think the, the caveat to this that I personally think everyone should incorporate is that in particularly the ICU patients who levels have got up, they got into the ICU, not quite this one where it was negative to start, but the ones that you've admitted, because I have much more experience than you've seen it more often, um, where they they are discharged to the floor. And the second they go to the floor, you know, they're no, they're ad-lib PO food, ad-lib fluids, walking around and all that stuff, I think, causes a, a, a renewed breakup and um, improved dissolution for a short period of time. And there's some interesting case reports have been published out there on it. There's one with lithium where a woman was dialyzed three times, twice because they stopped parenteral, uh, they stopped enteral uh, products after she had been put on NPO and then stopped and then started and then stopped. 
this really I think that's something this whole area is a mess. We really don't and have not studied dissolution and absorption with overdoses well enough at all. Yeah, I think it's just a good reminder that you can like literally never be sure you've ruled out salicylate until many a lot days later. But, Merry Christmas. They even gave activated charcoal too. Yeah. 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 Like everything about this case, just I, I saw the poster and, you know, I double take because it's, you know, another aspirin poster at a tox conference. And I was like, oh, no. And it just kept I, getting, it kept getting worse. I wonder if the charcoal actually played into a role there because there is clinically significant desorption that has been shown. And I got I have the paper where there was a binding of it and then an eventual unbinding and absorption entry. Well, uh, you could make the argument, Ryan, if you want me to argue for you with against me. Yes, I do. It would be nice to know if the charcoal they gave was or was not given with sorbitol. If it was given with sorbitol, you're causing two problems. You're pulling more fluid into the gut, which could help with dissolution just from that alone. And then you're also minimizing the, the particles of charcoal interacting with the particles of drug that are in solution because you're increasing the volume of the uh the contact area so that it could make uh, desorption better shortly and it might not bind as much or as well because of it. It's- I agree. I, I think pretty much everybody would have missed this. This is 12 hours out before they had a, a positive concentration, but how long do each of your poison centers watch a uh, watch an aspirin overdose before you say, yep, we're good. I've seen, I've seen this and I've seen a couple other cases and series and what Frank's describing is clearly not unheard of. It's just like, God, do you watch all these for 12 hours? It seems insane, but um yeah. it's what is the acceptable right. risk is, yeah this is this is grimace inducing by the way you all did notice how the levels only got to 55 because it gave charcoal and that's why charcoal should be used in everybody correct even that multi-dose charcoal we can come full circle well repeat it i just echoing everyone else's comments i mean this this case report just or this case just highlights the the concern with salicylates in general right is that you're it's hard to assess when you're fully out of the woods and this this is a uh, quite impressive account. I'm glad they put this into uh, a publication. It's, it's interesting to see because that's a little terrifying. And do you guys do any protocolizing for your poison centers? Are there, you know, for us, for instance, it's like we'll check two levels at minimum if there's a history of salicylate. Um, and if there's a really strong history, we'll might check more than that and actually feed them and walk them around in between. Frank, you got two in the air. I don't know about you, Emily or Josh. Two. I'm seeing two. Maybe. I'm not sure. Depends. Uh, the feeding and walking around is interesting. I don't think we explicitly say that, but um, I might incorporate that or decorporate that <laughs> now into my protocol. Do you want to do yours in, in 60 seconds, Dr. Comstock? Yeah, I'll give a I'll give a 10,000 foot view. Abstract number 267 high sensitivity troponin is frequently elevated after carbon monoxide exposure. So it's a retrospective review of patients who came in with carbon monoxide or carboxyhemoglobin, excuse me, percentages greater than five. They have 267 patients who they evaluate with this. Of those 267 patients, 55 had elevated carboxyhemoglobins and 17 of those had a troponin check. All had a detectable high sensitivity troponin and 12 of the 17 had elevated values. I think it's like greater than 10 nanograms per mil or something like that. So I, I bring this up not because it's practice changing, but it continues to confound me. And I, I just think it it demonstrates that the authors seem to be as confounded as to what to do with this. I, I've 
for all time with carbon monoxide. I have not known what to do with troponin. I know it's elevated fairly frequently. It's, I think, 5% in previous studies or, or even higher, maybe 10%. Fairly frequent that it's elevated, but mortality isn't necessary. It's not a predictor for mortality. It's not a predictor necessary for delayed neurocognitive sequelae. And it's actually been studied and found to not be predictive of delayed neurocognitive sequelae, but BNP elevation has been. So, you know, troponin is something that we're going to look at a lot more often than a BNP. And I think it makes more sense in our minds that that would be the marker for injury to check. But now with the, you know, the, the prevalence of everybody using high sensitivity trope, uh, now we're always getting those. And in this study, you can see that it's fairly frequent that it's elevated. So I think it just lends, uh, I'm glad that people are starting to look at this and hopefully some more of these data will start to trickle into the literature. But but frankly, uh, you know, they, they looked at in this study, is there a correlation between carboxyhemoglobin percentage and the troponin elevation? They found the answer to that is no. Whether or not that's not even, that's even the relation to look at, uh, the relation of interest, I'm not sure. I don't think of carboxyhemoglobin percentage as being an independent predictor for DNS or mortality to begin with. So I'm not a person who thinks that the percentage by itself is a very meaningful number. And so I don't know that I would have looked for a correlation between the trope and the, the carboxyhemoglobin, but I think there's other things that maybe we could be checking for correlations of. So I think it's it's nice to see that the door is starting to open for people to assess what this looks like. This isn't the answer. Um, and if anything, it just, uh, it, it misery loves company. And I feel like now I've got more company. I think they highlight well that investigation is warranted to better understand the relevance and the value of continuing to use. And we have had multiple cases this year where we have people who are like, they clear their CO, they don't meet criteria. They have quote unquote cardiac involvement. So it's like, okay, do you need to dive them because their trope is elevated? That If you go to, if you just Google CDC recommendations for CO, it's going to be right there. It says that. And there's the, you know, and obviously that's a whole other thing. Who needs to get dove in the first place? And if diving does anything, but it, you know, if you don't offer it, is that, are you liable? I mean, that's a kind of another thing. It, there's all sorts of questions that it brings into play. And then what happens when the trope continues to rise, but they have no symptoms and everything else is completely fine. That's like a big, and they've cleared their CO. It adds so much into the actual management uh, conundrum that I don't know is standardized. At least your misery has company, Ryan. You're not alone. Well, I could use lessons in brevity and directness from you. Dr. Comstock. <laughs> I like your way of going about it better, Frank. Which we serve all audiences here. <laughs> That's right. Well, I can't believe we got through all the abstract. Thank you. I really appreciate everyone providing their perspective on the limitations and value of all of the cases. I do want to also thank the authors of every one of these abstracts who put an effort to try to make something that we can use to take care of our patients better. Um, and honestly, it's half the battle. So thank you. Thank you to you guys. I'm I'm grateful for your patience and thank you all for including me on this and take care. Goodbye. Thanks everyone. Have a good one. Thanks for thanks for doing this, Ryan. I appreciate you having us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Great time as always. Can't wait to hear the episode. Well, wouldn't it be funny if I wasn't recording this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> no is the answer. It wouldn't be funny. Thanks for listening along. This was such a fun episode, and I hope you learned something. Let's do a 60-second review of everything we learned. Abstract 225. Methotrexate toxicity from therapeutic errors can cause serious problems, and we're trying to get better at triaging them. If you can educate your patients on how to take this drug appropriately, make sure you do. Abstract 251. 
Public health departments and poison centers can work together to prevent unregulated products with poisons in them from reaching the public. Abstract number two. The antidote seen for cyanide is always evolving, and likely in the case of a mass casualty, we'll need an intramuscular antidote. Fortunately, we have some bright people evaluating what the best antidotes will be, and more is to come soon. Abstract number 10. The St. Paul's early discharge criteria is a good reminder of minimum criteria a patient should probably meet before being discharged after receiving naloxone for an opioid overdose, but its performance leaves a lot to desire. And in the age of novel synthetic opioids, there might be even more concerns. Abstract number five, there's likely a reversal agent for THC intoxication that's going to come to market soon. It would definitely have a role, assuming the safety is there, in pediatric THC ingestions, but its introduction to the market could lead to some interesting non-overdose uses. Abstract 216, Physostigmine can be given if it's past its expiration date, although this is likely going to have a lot to do with what hospital you're working at and what their policies are. Many drugs still retain very good efficacy after they expire, and we shouldn't necessarily throw out vital medicines if there aren't other alternatives. Abstract 202. Salicylate can induce pylorospasm and bezoar formation, and thus has erratic absorption kinetics. There are cases of patients developing toxicity despite serial negative levels many hours later. Because it's so tricky, it's a great idea to talk with your poison center about whether the patient who has a history of salicylate ingestion is actually ready to go home, even if their level is undetectable or low. And finally, abstract 267. Troponin is frequently elevated after carbon monoxide exposure, and we know that cardiac involvement is not only potentially an indication for hyperbaric oxygen, but could be a sign of cardiac damage. There's a lot that we still need to figure out about what the relevance is of this elevated troponin, and if there are other better biomarkers like brain naturetic peptide. Okay, that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening along, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you're listening to, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us reach other people who are interested in learning about toxicology. You can always follow the show on social media to see when new episodes are released. We're on Twitter at Lab Poison. You can follow myself at EMPoisonFarmD. We have a Facebook page, The Poison Lab, and an Instagram, Tox underscore Talk. Of course, you can find all shows, all free medical games, resources, and educational videos, as well as a shop for any Tox trinkets if you want to rep the show in your home state at www.thepoisonlab.com. You can reach out to the show anytime at TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. We love getting listener messages. And of course, keep your ears peeled. We'll be releasing mystery cases that you can guess what the toxin might be to take part of our next episode. So when you see one of those come out, be sure to write into the show. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio, mate.